I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the B.C. Henderson Institute. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Joining me today is Mustafa Suleiman. Mustafa is a co-founder and CEO of Inflection AI, and also a venture partner at Greylock. Before that, he co-founded the very famous company DeepMind, one of the world's leading artificial intelligence companies, and was VP of AI product management and AI policy at Google. He's also founding co-chair of Partnership on AI, which is an organization which advances public discussion of AI and how it affects society. So today we're going to be discussing Mustafa's new book, which is called The Coming Wave, Technology, Power and the 21st Century's Greatest Dilemma, which comes out in September of this year from Crown Publishers, which is co-authored with Michael Basker. In it, Mustafa covers a very broad ground, but essentially, as I interpret it, he's talking about not only the potential, but the dangers of the latest wave of technologies to society and to nation states and how we can uh, contain those dangers. So I look forward to discussing this with you, Mustafa. Congratulations on the book and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for that introduction, Martin. I appreciate it. It's great to be here. So your book was quite a sobering one as I read it. I mean, you see like your central thesis was that the latest wave of technologies, principally AI and synthetic biology, pose, as well as great promise, unprecedented threats to society and nation states. And we must make efforts, special efforts to contain them. Did I get that right? Or would you characterize the central thesis in some other way? I think that's a fair description. I mean, I think the somewhat contradictory reality in my book is that I'm actually a huge optimist when it comes to technology. I'm a you know huge believer in the benefits that it brings. I'm passionately pursuing the commercial and public interest benefits that it's going to bring. And so my goal in really writing the book and, and outlining this thesis of the potential dangers of proliferation isn't to say that we should slow down or in fact stop in any way. It's that if we are actually to be able to harness the upsides and, and really see this moment as a moment of transformation in a positive sense, then we have to take a cold, hard look at the potential downsides. And I think too often people fall into one or other camp, like lots of people in Silicon Valley are just sort of have been sort of naive techno optimists or boosters. And that doesn't really cut it anymore. And likewise, it's easy to just be a rejectionist, you know, some kind of modern day Luddite and think that there is a plausible path where we actually stop making progress in new technologies. And that seems to me inconceivable given the, the incentives at play. Right. Now, you seem to be making the case that, of course, you know, there's always unintended consequences and unintended negative consequences of technologies. But you seem to be making the case that these two particular technologies are more of a threat than any previous technologies. And when I read that, I'm actually the Fritz Lang's Metropolis movie of 1927 came to mind. You know, we're going to be taken over by the machines. I mean, in a sense, the current wave of technology is always perceived to be the most threatening. But what is the case that there are particular dangers for these two technologies. So one way of thinking about it is to start with the defining features of this new wave. So the wave, by my definition, includes two very fundamental technology platforms, the technology of the development of intelligence and AI, and the technology for the engineering of life itself, which is synthetic biology. Synthetic biology is probably five to 10 years behind. But there's no doubt that AI has hit its inflection point. 
And we really are in a moment of exponential change where the technologies are getting better by an order of magnitude every 12 months. And that is that in itself is truly unprecedented. So the rate of change is unprecedented. But there's a, a number of features of both of these two technology paradigms, which are themselves unlike previous types of technology, right? So the, the first is that they have asymmetric impacts, right? So a, a very sort of narrow, small use of the technology can have massively wide-ranging effects. A synthetically engineered pandemic scale pathogen, for example, could potentially, right, theoretically be engineered by one or two or three people in a lab with very minimal equipment that would cost less than $100,000 with an education that is widely available. At this stage, probably at undergraduate level, but in the future, through natural language instruction from a, an AI that could coach you and teach you to do something like that. So the one-to-many impact is enormous. The second is that they have hyper-evolutionary characteristics, both AI and synthetic biology. What that means is because they are manifested in bits, they're operating in information space. You don't have to physically manipulate atoms and create a new product or a new physical thing in the real world in order to take the next iteration on evolving the products. You can actually do that in super fast time, taking advantage of supercomputers, using you know, billions of points of data and so on. So they evolve incredibly fast because they're not constrained by the physical real world. The third is that they're inherently omni-use, right? So we're used to the idea of things being dual use where they might have a military and a civilian purpose. But these technologies are by their very design intended to do many, 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 many things all at the same time. And anyone who's used ChatGPT or any of these new language models can get a sense for that. And then finally, there's inherent autonomous characteristics in these technologies, right? By their very design, they're engineered to do things, you know, without a human in the loop all the time. And biology is an obvious case of that. It's an organic material. And, you know, there are obviously constraints around that. But likewise with, with AI, there's a whole movement in AI development, which is focused around autonomy. So these characteristics are unlike what we've experienced in other waves of technology. Just to take that a bit further, you, I think somewhat connected with us, you, you propose something called the modern Turing test, which as I understand it is measuring not how AI appears or sounds like, but what effect it has in the world. And if that's right, I wanted to ask you, you know, what is the stage of development? Because presumably a lot of these harmful effects that you're imagining are not just presentations of information, they are they are effects in the world. And as I look at large language models, I mean, today, is it not true that they are merely linguistic correlation models? They're mainly about how the thing sounds and appears and not the effect in the world. So t- tell me about that angle. Yes, that's exactly right. And it's, it's actually a, a good way of summarizing it. Just tracking back, I proposed a new version of the Turing test called the modern Turing test, which tries to measure our progress towards capabilities, like what a system can do rather than just what it can say. So the original Turing test was a North Star for AI researchers because it basically said, intelligence is encapsulated in language. If a machine can imitate language well enough to deceive a human that it's actually a, a human rather than a machine, then you know we must have captured something important about intelligence. Now we've come pretty close to doing that. It's pretty clear 
that we don't know whether we're closer to intelligence or not. So the test, in a way, has let us down. And I think that practically speaking, what we're much more interested in is what can a system do? And because language itself is a technology, and these, these large language models are learning to imitate language well enough to you know, participate in life, culturally, socially, in time commercially too, they're able to manipulate you know, objects and they're able to persuade people, they're able to negotiate, they're able to carry out complex tasks. And so I predict that sometime in the next three to five years, you'll be able to give a high level instruction to an AI that says something like, go make a million dollars by inventing a new product and manufacturing it, putting it up for sale online, marketing it and turn a profit. And that's a very abstract goal, and it could probably go off and do that independently. So you seem to be implying that in the short term, if we set aside how, how the AI sounds and appears, and clearly you've made a lot of progress in that dimension, in terms of its impact in the world, you seem to be implying that the main mechanism of impact in the short term will be to potentially deceive and manipulate humans in its conversations with them, rather than, say, being hooked up to and cause bad things to happen in infrastructural systems. So I think both are true. I think in the first phase, it will be AIs that can have conversations with other humans and with other AIs and encourage them to do things or ask them to do things. So for example, it might synthetically generate a new image of a chair that it wants to go manufacture, and then it would email a manufacturer in China, discuss the blueprints with them, refine the outline, agree a price, have it drop shipped, then try and market it. Each of these would touch on interactions in the real world. I don't think by default they need to be deceptive at all. So I don't think there's anything bad there. I think this is going to be tremendously valuable and extremely positive in the world. But it's a good measure of what the system can actually do in practice. Right. So one of the particular threats that you point out is the emergence of superstar companies. Superstar companies being so big and powerful that they transcend the normal controls of the state. And, and of course, you yourself have worked for some, some very big companies. How close are we to that scenario? And how does that play out? Why is that a danger? I think it's a danger because my observation is that competition has been the primary engine of progress over many, many centuries. And I think many people would agree with that. And I think that if it looks like we're headed to a world where superstar companies, superstar cities, indeed superstar individuals, take an outsized chunk of the, the profits or the, the kind of measure of progress, then they're able to reinvest that in consolidating their positions. And I refer to this as the, the compounding effect of turning intelligence into capital, right? So, you know, you organize a bunch of people, you aggregate a bunch of data, you secure your distribution in your market position, your product generates you vast amounts of money and profit. And you use that to entrench your position further because you can hire better people and, and so on and so forth. And so if you're able to use an AI to accelerate that process, it increases the likelihood that those with access to the best people, the most amount of data, the most amount of computation, they can consolidate their position very quickly and move ahead of and away from everybody else. I guess this is a very timely debate in the sense that whether large language models have intrinsic competitive advantages very much up for debate. There was this leaked memo that said that I think it was Google's technology has no moats. And in a sense, 
I mean, these new language models seem to have been born commoditized. They're, they're open source. There are multiple versions. Yet at the same time, there are some potential, let's say, network effects or feedback effects whereby, for instance, he that owns the data has the power or he or she that owns the computing power has the sort of a self-reinforcing power. Do you think there's any intrinsic competitive advantage or supernormal scale advantages in AI as currently constituted? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the contradictory thing about this coming wave is that both open source and centralized models are going to accelerate at lightning pace simultaneously. And you might kind of squint and think, oh, isn't that zero sum? Well, not quite, because it means that those who do have the most amount of capital will be able to build extremely high quality, very controllable, you know, outsized experiences. But at the same time, as we've seen, the capabilities in open source are, you know, improving at an unbelievable clip. I mean, in June 2020, GPT-3 was 175 billion parameters. Today, it's being trained open source at approximately 1.5 billion parameters. And that's roughly a measure of a system's complexity. So this is a nosedive in the cost of training and the cost of serving, the cost of deploying the model. And I, I think that trajectory is going to continue, which, contrary to what I just said earlier, is a good sign for competition because I think it enables lots and lots of people to participate in the innovation ecosystem. I'm sure you're familiar with Brian Arthur's theories of the evolution of technology, former head of Xerox Park and now at Santa Fe. I mean, he points out the, the intrinsic serendipity, unpredictability of technology, both in its effects and its side effects. And I'm, I'm wondering how definitive we can be about the, the benefits and the, and the disbenefits. We got very excited for a while, for instance, by, by the metaverse and, you know, expectations around that appear to have relaxed, at least for the time being. So is your case that we don't know for sure what the, the effects and the side effects are going to be, but out of precaution, we should take action and think through how to contain the consequences? Or is the other dangers fairly clear and present to you? That's exactly right. I think that we should adopt the precautionary principle because we're unsure what the potential harms and potential benefits might be. And there is enough common sense reasoning to take a look at the the latest large language models and compare them to where we were a year, two years ago, three years ago, and see the seismic difference and then use that to, to project out what things are going to look like over the next three to five years. At my company, for example, Inflection AI, we make a, an AI called PI, which stands for personal intelligence. And we're training models now, which are significantly larger than GPT-4 and, and are built on one of the largest supercomputers in the world using NVIDIA GPU H100s. And so we, we can very clearly predict how these model training runs are going to scale. And with each new order of magnitude and scale, we've seen emergent capabilities that have been surprising. And so I just think it's sensible for us to approach that with, with caution. Just so that we don't paint you as an unbridled pessimist, let's maybe spend a few minutes on benefits. At this stage in the development of the technology, I, I guess we're close to a peak of excitement. So, you know, it's the natural course of things that we were excited about the prospects and, and the, uh, the side effects. But what would be your reflections on what the technologies can't yet do? For instance, in my understanding, large language models don't have any direct regard for truth. They're not able to verify facts. They don't have built-in logic. They reflect logic to the extent that it's reflected in the training set, and so on and so on. There are, there are severe limitations relative to human intelligence. 
although we might tend to anthropomorphize the intelligence that we, we think we see? What are the, the limiting factors in the current wave of technologies? And is anything coming along which you think on a particular timescale might address them? I think that those things that you list are accurate observations about the limitations of models today. But I'm very confident that the hallucinations, the factuality and the grounding issues, the controllability issues, they're, they're going to fall away. I mean, we, we're going to solve those problems. We already have models which are infinitely more factual and grounded than they were just three years ago, right? And so these are the sorts of capabilities that emerge when you move through you know, the scaling laws of training these models. I think the second set of capabilities that's going to emerge is better quality reasoning. So, you know, the model doesn't really have a sense of state at the moment. It can't hold an idea in working memory, hold a second idea in working memory and a third, and then reason over those individual components. It has to do a sentence completion to interpolate between the two or three points. And that's highly inefficient. And that's why it's not very good at these kinds of chain of thought type exercises. But again, that's almost certainly going to be something that we make huge progress on in the next three years, both from an engineering perspective, because we'll find other ways of representing state in traditional databases, and secondly, through you know, model architecture innovation. So what does that mean in total? Well, I think we're taking huge steps towards being able to recreate very large chunks of what make us special as humans. And that's exactly what we need in this day and age. We, we need more intelligence, right? We need more creativity. And that is going to drive and unleash productivity, you know, unlike anything we've ever seen. I think it's going to be the most productive, positively productive period in the history of our species, because everybody is going to get access to a super smart, very capable teacher for any subject they're interested in, a super smart research assistant, a super smart aide, a chief of staff, a personal assistant. So everybody's time that has previously been spent, you know, frittered away on administration or, you know, looking for documents or trying to synthesize information or trying to learn something from scratch, that's just going to feel completely seamless and effortless in the next five years. And that's going to make us all much, much smarter. Let's come back to containment, having the upside without, without the downside or a limited downside. You say that there's always been a containment problem for any technology, but the Containment problem is particularly acute and challenging for these uh, two technologies that you focus on. Why is that? What is it about the technologies that not only makes them powerful and gives the potential for side effects that you've already explained, but also makes them hard to contain? I think it's because they are not constrained by needing you know, a physical sort of substrate. So if you think about the development of nuclear weapons, those require vast capital investment, huge infrastructure which can mostly be seen from space. You know, we know where those you know, uranium-235 materials are in the world, and when they move around, they can be traced. You know, these, these new technologies don't have any of those qualities. They can't be observed. They really don't have a physical substrate. It's true that they exist in data centers, but those data centers are not transparent to any really state agencies most of the time. They're largely you know, sort of encrypted and maybe they'll know a customer list, but that's, that's the most. You know, within that, there's a, a shell around the technologies. And then on top of that, because there is so much information available online, individual actors or very small groups of actors can operate with all the skills necessary to make a lot of progress in these areas. And again, not really flag 
to any kinds of authorities that they're, they're actually working on these sorts of things. So it's a very different challenge to any of the sort of traditional bioweapons, chemical weapons, nuclear weapons challenges that, we, that we've had in the past. So what, what can we do about that? You touch on some of the previously successful instances of containment, technology containment in the book, uh, namely nuclear weapons control, CFCs, and I might suggest adding aviation safety. What can we learn from those successes? And do we need to go beyond those successes? And, and, and what sort of things are you contemplating? Yeah, that's a great question. So aviation is a very good example where there was cross-industry collaboration right from the outset, where there was an acknowledgement that we have to have untamperable audit logs of everything that happens, including recording the cockpit and you know all the telemetry that happens on the aircraft at any given moment. And that is shared with a centralized authority that is working in the public interest to learn from you know, safety incidents and then update best practices, that there's a global licensing regime, which means that poorly performing players get penalized or get removed, you know, pilots' licenses get removed. Remember, it wasn't too long ago that pilots were allowed to drink, <laughs> you know, often to excess. It was probably only 30 or 40 years ago that that was, that was okay. So, you know, there's a slow, methodical iteration of best practices that comes from cautious experimentation in the wild. And all of those lessons and insights, many of which are also present in motor cars and, you know, the history of road transport, all of those are going to have to apply in this setting. And we shouldn't think that just because it's digital or because it's by default multinational or, you know, this content lives in data centers, which don't have an obvious visual manifestation like a car or a plane does. We shouldn't think that therefore, you know, we can't wrap our arms around this. All those existing methods for containment, read, you know, regulation or licensing oversight, all of those lessons still apply. And I think that's a good reason for us to be optimistic. Now you're on record as having spoken with President Biden about this topic. What direction do you anticipate the US will take on AI safeguards or what direction would you like it to take? And would it be feasible for there to be a divergence of direction between China, Europe, and the US? Do the, do the three powers have to go in the same direction to contain the risks that you've highlighted? Yes. I mean, I think I saw President Biden at the White House a few weeks ago with some leaders of other technology companies where we all signed up to a set of voluntary commitments, which include red teaming our models, auditing performance, sharing best practices with one another, some of the kinds of things that I alluded to with, with aircraft safety. And I think that's a pretty good first step on the way to regulation. I think there's going to be an executive order coming out of the White House in the next few weeks. And then I think in time, there'll probably be a push for more regulation, or at least some regulation in the AI space, because there isn't any at the moment. And I think that's a good thing. I think that the European, the EU AI Act is also a good template here. Um, they've taken a more precautionary approach. It's been criticized for being anti-innovation. And that, that's not really a view that I share. I think that it's actually pretty sensible to you know, take a risk-based threshold, which is what they've done here. And I imagine that the US is going to follow suit with something like that, just as it, it has done with GDPR and privacy over the years, even though there's a lot of issues with that. So I imagine that the US and you know, Europe are going to align. I think China is a whole different story. And, and more likely, we end up with a bit of a balkanization of the digital world between two poles. So I wish we could go on and on. It's a very rich subject, but unfortunately, time is limited. So if I may, I'd like to end with a few personal questions. Part of the significance of your book 
is that you are, of course, immensely credible in talking about these topics because you're an AI pioneer, having founded companies and ventures and been successful in the, in the topic. What alerted you personally to the, to the risks that you chose to write a book about? For somebody that's actually trying to you know, make a fortune in the field, that's in some ways a, a strange, a counterintuitive thing to do. What was the trigger for you that you needed to write this book? I think that what was interesting to me is the pace of change, the exponential rate of change in both the size of these models and the amount of data they're trained on and their capabilities. And I think during the pandemic, I had a bit of an opportunity to sort of sit back and truly reflect on the history of technology. And what was very obvious to me is that proliferation is the default. All technologies that have been useful to us by their very nature get cheaper easier to use, and therefore they spread far and wide. And if that is the trajectory that's going to continue with artificial intelligence and synthetic biology over a 20 or 30 year period, that really just does unleash some very, very fundamentally different forces to anything we've ever experienced before. I don't necessarily think they have to be bad, but I think there are a significant number of manifestations of those forces which could be bad. And I think the good news is that we've got time, we can plan, and we can design these systems in ways where they always remain accountable to you know, civilization, to humans. They should not have to develop their own goals and objectives and, and develop a life of their own. They can stay within our control and we can contain them. And I think that's the big challenge of the next century is containing those forces. Another interesting thing I noticed about your career was that you, you started off as an entrepreneur and you had a very successful career with a, with a big tech company, and now you've gone back to your origins and you've, you have another startup. Personally, why, why the step away from big tech? Because I love startups. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love small and fast and super elite teams that are highly multidisciplinary, that are focused around a single goal and make outsized progress. Obviously, I, I, you know, I didn't necessarily need to work again or do another project, but I was just absolutely addicted to the idea of going fast and making things. And that, that's basically what I wake up every morning doing, and I, and I love it. And in some ways, you are the uh, epitome of the American dream. I think you're a successful entrepreneur, a technologist, venture capitalist, starting from very humble origins. I believe your father was a taxi driver and your mother was a nurse. Would you say that entrepreneurialism is alive and well in the US economy? Without doubt. I mean, Silicon Valley is on fire, it is unbelievable. I mean, there are so many startups trying crazy things and experimenting. I mean, it, it feels to me like I imagine it felt in the 90s. You know, there's just a new like renaissance is a boom, basically. You know, the UK, on the other hand, I think is, has lost its mojo and I think has to figure out where it's going to get its confidence back. And I think that the route there is to embrace risk taking reward failure, celebrate commercial success, and stop being ashamed or embarrassed about you know, entrepreneurialism and, and technology and business, because we need it. It's the engine of our future. And I think, unfortunately, I mean, that's why I sort of left the UK and came to, to Silicon Valley. Having traveled here for 15 years, I knew that if I was ever going to start a company again, it would be, be here in Silicon Valley. So thank you very much, Mustafa, and uh, congratulations again on the book, which was a fantastic read. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you profiling it. And please, you know, do go out and order The Coming Wave. It's out now. Discussing The Coming Wave, Technology Power and the 21st Century's Greatest Dilemma by Mustafa Suleiman 
out from Crown Publishers in uh, September of this year. I personally found it to be a very fascinating read. The, the arguments, I think, are very balanced and uh, stand in their own right. And of course, are very credible coming from Mustafa, a person with very deep practical knowledge of the technologies. I think it made me reflect on technology, the benefits of technology, regulation of technology, role of corporations. And I think with these technologies being as universal in their usage as they are, probably there's something of interest for any business leader here. If you like this conversation, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite podcasting platform. And as always, we welcome your feedback.